How exciting is this? Not only, not only are we regathering in person, and it's great that we can be joined by those in their living rooms um, in, in warmth, no doubt, but not only are we in person, we're in King's house, which is beyond exciting. If that wasn't exciting enough, we're starting perhaps the most intense teaching series we've ever set out on, on the book of Revelation called Unseen Reality. So we're going to be talking about red dragons. We're going to be talking about beasts with seven horns. We're going to be talking about lambs with seven eyes and lakes of fire. So if, if you enjoy Narnia, you're going to love this teaching series. If you enjoy Lord of the Rings, this one is for you. The difference is we're not talking about fiction. We're talking about theology. And we're talking about a theology that's centered around the person of Jesus. The first five words of this book are the giveaway, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is all about Jesus. And this is what we need most right now. Not just a swift kind of rollout of the the vaccine, not an upsurge in the economy, not sort of like international flight to be available for the summer. Lord God, please. What we really need is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Because when you see God, it changes everything. So listen to this theologian. This is a guy called Daryl Johnson. He's written my favorite um, commentary on the book of Revelation of the two commentaries that I've actually read. This one was my favorite. He says this, no other book of the Bible presents the gospel as powerfully as the last book does. No other book of the Bible in the face of all that threatens to undo us proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ the way the last book does. No other book helps us see Jesus as he is right now, as clearly and compellingly as the last book John wrote. No other book helps us see Jesus relative to the movement of history the way the last book does. No other book helps us see Jesus relative to the powers at work in our time the way the last book does. Can you hear the excitement in his voice and in mine? I'm losing it. No other book helps us see him in a way that overcomes our fears and frees us for radical faith and no other book in all of human literature crystallizes what it means to belong to and follow Jesus in this world. You're excited. I was hoping for more. I was expecting more. I haven't preached in person for so long. I was, I was just expecting for more. There we go. There we go. You can join in at home as well. Just a little fist bump or something like that. Um, so let's talk about the genre of the book before we sort of like dig in. Now, um, our kids returned to school a little while ago. Thank God, homeschooling was brutal. Um, and on day one, Benj, our eldest, was in an English lesson. And the teacher said, look, I'd love to know, kids, what you've been reading during lockdown. That's when panic really began for Benj. Um, because he hadn't done loads of reading, if I'm honest, particularly in the last few weeks of homeschooling. He hadn't done loads. He'd been doing other educational activities like Fortnite and Minecraft and, and Roblox and some other computer games. And we, we thought that was highly educational. They read things on the screen, you see. Um, but he hadn't been doing much reading for the last few weeks. And she says, look, if no one volunteers, I'm just going to pick someone. No one volunteered. Benj, why don't you say what you've been reading? In that moment, his mind just went blank. He couldn't remember the books that he had been reading early on. And then suddenly, because he couldn't think of anything else, he remembered that like the very beginning of lockdown, I started reading a book called I Am David to him, like just before bed. I Am David, this incredible book about a kid who escapes a concentration camp, journeys through Europe and ends up in Denmark. An amazing book. That's all he can remember. The only thing is we only read like two chapters before we got out of the habit. So he said, um, um, Miss, I've been reading I Am David. And she responds, I am David. 
my favourite book in the world. So panic levels continue to rise. Benj, I love that you've been reading I'm David. What was your favourite bit in the story? He's really panicking now. He said, I loved all of it, miss. Okay, well, well, what genre would you say I Am David is? Again, he's really panicking now. And he responds with this, I think maybe it's adventure. <laughs> and she looks like, uh, I guess there is adventure in it, and then moves on to the next kid. He got home, he told us the story. I gave him a huge hug. I said, Ben, I am so proud that you can think on your feet in that way. Amazing. Anyway, what is the genre of the book of Revelation? Well, three things. Number one, it's a letter. You need to remember as we read through this, it's a letter. It's written to specific people at a specific moment in human history to very specific cities in geographical context facing very specific needs. If you ignore that, what you'll try and do, and you'll see parts of the church do this constantly, they try and apply it as if it was written to our moment. Like maybe Trump is the beast. And like maybe the red dragon is a reference to communism, maybe dot, dot, dot. And they try and force it to fit our context. Remember, it was written in the first century to a specific people, to the church experiencing heavy persecution in the Roman Empire. So it's written around 96 AD. Now, the persecution of the Christians really began in AD 65 under Nero, but it then intensified under 67, in 67 AD under Emperor Vespasian. Then Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. Peter was crucified, Paul was beheaded, beheaded, Timothy was murdered, and then things got really bad in AD 92, where Domitian became emperor. Now, he was a really insecure tyrant, and he ordered that the whole empire bow down and worship him as God, and proclaim that he alone is Lord and God. He changed the name of the Roman Empire to the Eternal Empire. He called himself Everlasting King. Ironic, right? Because he's dead, and the empire is no more. All the citizens had to go to a temple that was built in his honour, they would take a pinch of incense, throw it into the fire and declare, Caesar is Lord. This was an act of worship that was deeply formative in building the empire and the apostle John refused. Everyone had to. And he said, look, I'm happy to honour Caesar, but bow down and worship him. No way. There is one Lord and God. His name is Jesus. So John was labelled as an atheist which is interesting, right? He didn't believe in the emperor as God. He didn't believe in the Roman pantheon of gods. And if that's what atheism's about, let me just say that I'm an atheist. Like, I don't believe in the secular gods of this age. I don't have enough faith for that. I don't believe they have power to save and to redeem. So John was labelled an atheist. He was banished and sent to a Greek island, Patmos. You might be thinking, oh, lovely. It was a prison island at the time. So like Robin Island, where Nelson Mandela spent 27 years, like Guantanamo Bay. So he was sent to this island as a political traitor and outcast. He's 80 in his 80s when he's writing this, so he's frail, and he's writing to the seven churches in the province of Asia that he cares most passionately about, and he's got wisdom to offer. More than that, he's had a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, they're experiencing persecution. He wants them to know about this revelation. So, it's a letter. 
Secondly, it's a prophecy. Five times in the book you'll hear that this is a prophecy. But listen to this. One theologian wrote this. In the biblical world, the word prophecy does not so much connote prediction as it does declaration. The heart of biblical prophecy is not, look what's coming, but thus says the Lord. In other words, this isn't all about the future. There is a future dimension to it. It is about the present. God wants to speak into our present. God wants to speak through his word to us right now in King's House at KXC in the challenges that we are facing. So it's a prophecy. But more than that, thirdly then, it's an apocalypse. Now, I know some of you, you've been watching a lot of Netflix in lockdown. You're like, an apocalyptic film, I love it. There will be zombies and people with guns and there'll be lots of death. No, no, the word apocalypse, the Greek word apocalypto, literally means revelation, or perhaps a better translation is unveiling. It's when you pull back the curtain and see what's really happening on the stage. It's when you open up the car bonnet and and have a look at the engine and see what's really going on beneath the surface. In this revelation, John is saying to these churches, look behind the curtain. Can you understand what really is going on? Then apocalyptic literature, it is a bit weird and it's truly wonderful. People often appear as animals. So I mentioned there is a lamb, there's a dragon, and there is a beast. Historical events are often represented with natural phenomena such as earthquakes and floods. Numbers and colours are important. So a creature with seven eyes, that's significant. 144,000 worshippers, that's significant. A beast with ten horns, that's significant. So it's weird, but it's amazing. Why is imagery important? So back to Daryl Johnson. He says this, imagery has the power to hook us deep inside. Images can quickly and effectively convey that which we struggle to put into words. Imagery goes beyond the intellect and through the emotions into the imagination, grabbing hold of us at the deepest recesses of our being. Imagery slowly but surely works on the intellect and emotions, changing the way that we see and hear and feel reality. And more than mere propositional truth, imagery sustains the new vision of reality. We learn to see things differently as God sees things. So in chapter one, which is where we're going to be today, there's a vision of a son of man with seven stars in his hand. We'll unpack that. Chapter four, there's a throne with four living creatures full of eyes. We'll unpack that in future weeks. Chapter five, there's a lamb with seven eyes and seven horns. We'll unpack that. Chapter 12, there's a woman giving birth to a child with a red dragon trying to devour the child. Now that gets really interesting. Now you need to know that isn't a prophecy of what's to come. That's John pulling back the curtain and this is the nativity scene, right? So we've got four accounts of the nativity, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and we've got wise men and shepherds and angels, Mary, Joseph, let's not forget the donkey. We've got baby Jesus, like we've seen many, many nativities, right? Um, But Revelation offers a different one where there's a red dragon trying to devour the child which is a reference to Herod, right? But more than that, the demonic forces driving the activity of Herod. Like if you pull back the curtain, it's not just this beautiful nativity scene. There's a red dragon trying to take out the son of God. Now I've had an idea. I'm pretty excited about it. I haven't mentioned it to our team yet. That this next Christmas, we're going to do a kid's nativity (laughs) and it will be a mashup of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John with the revelation scene of nativity. So one of the kids, you know, maybe Isaiah Hendrickson or one of the kids can do like, is there any room at the inn? 
carrot and then there'll be a red dragon. I think the kids will love it. So if you're a scriptwriter, get in touch with me. We can work on something together. And I'm obviously half joking. That's chapter 12. Chapter 13, there's a beast emerging from the sea with 10 horns and seven heads. Now, again, if you know your sort of geography, then you'll know that the city of Rome, the nerve center of the empire, is quite close to the ocean. And there was 10 hills surrounding the city of Rome. So when they hear of a beast with 10 horns emerging from the sea, they're thinking, this is about Rome. This is about the fall of Rome and the kingdom of God beginning to break out. You see, we need some keys to unlock what's going on in the text. And when we learn to see, everything begins to make sense and it builds faith. This is what Richard Balcom, another theologian, said. He said, we should remember that Revelation's readers in the great cities of the province of Asia were constantly confronted with powerful images of the Roman vision of the world. Civic and religious architecture. Just imagine the buildings, iconography, statues, rituals, festivals, even the visual wonder of cleverly engineered miracles in the temples, all provided visual impressions of Roman imperial power. They would stir up wonder, draw people in, into worship. In this context, Revelation provides a set of Christian prophetic counter images which impress on its readers a different vision of the world, how it looks from heaven to which John is caught up. The visual power of the book affects a kind of purging of the Christian imagination. And boy, do we need that right now, right? A purging of the Christian imagination, refurbishing it with alternative visions of how the world is and will be. And therefore, the primary exhortation in Revelation is look and listen, not trust and obey, right? Some of us have a hard time trusting and obeying because we're not looking and listening. If you see Jesus for who he really is, you're going to trust him. You're going to put your faith in him. So you need to open your eyes and look. 19 times in the book of Revelation, it says, look, look, he's coming on the clouds. Look, the lamb is on the throne. Look, Babylon, a metaphor for Rome or any empire that sets itself up against God. Look, Babylon, the great is falling. Look, the lion is overcome. Look, a white horse. Look, he's coming quickly. Mr. Tumble would have a field day, right? Look, that's one for the parents there. For those that watch CBs, the little chuckles. Um, if you haven't seen Mr. Tumble, you can Google him. Look. So just look and see what is happening all around. And when you see it, it will change everything. Richard Balcom says this, the here and now look quite different when they're opened up to transcendence. So this is the encouragement. Like pull back the curtain and you're going to begin to see things differently. If you think the Holocaust can be explained by the evil of one dictator or one regime, then you are naive. If you think transatlantic slave, the slave trade can simply be explained by economics, then you are naive. If you think the march on Capitol Hill by Trump supporters can be explained simply by right-wing politics, then you are naive. If you think the porn industry can simply be explained by misdirected lust, then you are naive. Pull back the curtains and you realize there's an unseen realm, an unseen reality that's shaping the here and now. And there is a battle going on between the forces of darkness and the armies of light. And if you think that sounds nuts, right? The leading scientists of our day would call it superstring theory. That essentially there's three dimensions, 3D, that we're aware of, out of fourth dimension time. They would say there's six or seven other dimensions that we don't really know much about. We're aware that they exist. So if the leading scientists of our day 
believe that there are unseen realms that are shaping the here and now. It shouldn't be beyond the people of God to have an imagination that's open to one such realm, the spiritual realm, what Paul would describe as the heavenlies that are shaping the here and now. John would say, look, don't be naive. Pull back the curtain, things will begin to make sense. So let's read the first bit of of the revelation of, of John. This is essentially the revelation that John has of Jesus Christ. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands that represent the churches, by the way. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held the seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I'm the first. I'm the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Now, this is an image that he has, a revelation. And his response is to fall you know, face down and worship. He's lost in wonder. And you can tell he's lost in wonder because notice with the revelation, he's grabbing for similes, right? It, it was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. It was like kind of that his hair was white as snow. He, he can't quite describe it. He's lost in wonder, right? Now, I want to play you a quick video which is an example of someone who loses the ability to articulate what's actually going on and he's totally lost in wonder. This has become an internet sensation. I've no doubt some of you will have seen it. This is the double rainbow guy. Um, But let's just watch this guy who sees a double rainbow and he is undone. So cue the video. All the way, double rainbow, oh my God. It's a double rainbow all the way. Whoa, that's so intense. Whoa, man. Wow. Wow. Whoa. Whoa. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Whoa. Oh, wow. God, look at that. It's starting to even look like a triple rainbow. Oh my God, it's full on. Double rainbow all the way across the sky. Oh my God. Oh my God. What does this mean? Oh, 
my God. Oh, oh God, it's so bright. Oh my God, it's so bright and vivid. Oh, oh, oh. We're gonna, we're gonna keep watching that. Just so sound can go a little bit down. We'll just have him weeping in the background. Because for the next two minutes, he just carries on weeping. This is like close to an out-of-body experience because he saw a double rainbow, right? So just imagine that he'd seen what John saw as the curtain was pulled back. He'd be weeping uncontrollably. Not double rainbow all the way, but like, oh my goodness. He's still crying in the background. So, so let's go through this image then. Um, firstly, so Jesus is the Son of Man. It says he's dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. So dressed in a robe, that's a priestly robe, by the way. You know the Latin word for priest is pontifex. It's an engineering term. It means bridge builder. What John sees is like Jesus is the priest who builds a bridge between heaven and earth and the kingdom of God is at hand. He's still going, double rainbow all the way. And he constantly asks the question, what does it mean? What does it mean? And that's exactly what's happening in Revelation chapter one. John is asking like, what does it mean? And it means Jesus is the high priest who brings heaven to earth. Notice that the language of the belt then is getting distracted. We can move, we can move on now. So back to the slides. Um, so what does the belt mean? It's a golden sash, right? So it's a picture of royalty. If it was around the waist, that would symbolize someone who is active at work, but it's around his chest. In other words, this priest, this king, his work is finished. It points to the finished work of the cross. He's defeated death. He's overcome sin. He's overcome the evil one, and therefore his kingdom is at hand. This would have been John like double rainbow all the way but it gets better. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as the snow. In other words, he's the ageless, ageless one. He's seen it all. He's seen empires rise and fall, the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Persians, the Greek, the Romans, the rise of the Spanish Empire, the British Empire. He's seen ideologies come and go, the apartheid regime, Marxism, Darwinism, modernism, postmodernism. He's seen rulers come and go, but he keeps standing, right? If you want wisdom, find someone with gray hair. If you want divine wisdom, go to the one whose hair is as white as snow. There at the beginning, will be there at the end. He knows exactly what's going on and the numbers of hairs on your head. He's wisdom personified. More than that, his eyes were like blazing fire. He's totally pure. He's totally purifying. His fire illuminates and it refines. He sees through my facade. He sees through your facade with a raging fire of love that can't help but bring life. Like in lockdown, have you had moments where you're like, I'm just more aware of my brokenness and my selfishness and my addictive tendencies. I'm just aware of my sin. I need someone to bring fire and refine me and purify me. Jesus brings the fire. Just one glance and he can heal and cleanse like double rainbow all the way. Um, more than that, his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. Now this is a reference to another apocalyptic image in Daniel chapter 2. 
The king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, has a dream of a statue that represents the worldly kingdoms that would follow his kingdom, the kingdom of Babylon. And then this statue is destroyed by a rock which represents the kingdom of God. So here's a visual representation of the statue. Um, The head is, I didn't do this, Um, the head is of gold. The Babylonians were known for their gold statues. But what would follow the Babylonians is a silver chest. The Medo-Persian Empire were known for their accumulation of silver, the accumulation of wealth. This was a prophecy, by the way, in Daniel 2, and, and it was absolutely correct as to what would follow. What went beyond that then is the Greeks, these thighs of bronze, the Greeks were known for their bronze armour. What would follow the Greek Empire? And it's the Romans, symbolised by iron, strong enough to crush their enemies underfoot. But the final thing in the statue was that the feet were a mix of iron and clay, in other words, weak, couldn't provide a strong foundation. So when the kingdom of God came, all these worldly kingdoms began to disintegrate and Jesus began to establish an everlasting kingdom that would carry on into eternity. So when John sees that his feet are like bronze on fire, he's basically seeing that the foundations to his kingdom are secure. Like, do you have moments where you feel like the foundations to your own life, they're like weak and fragile? A couple of bits of bad news and things would begin to fall apart. Like Jesus' feet, they are strong. They are a firm foundation. It gets better. His voice is like the sound of rushing waters, a voice that brings power and peace. Have you stood by a waterfall? It's kind of terrifying and comforting at the same time. That's like the voice of God. It gets better. In his right hand, he held the stars, right? And you need to know in the first century, their understanding of the solar system, they didn't call it that, but they only knew of seven planets at the time, right? And they would monitor the movement of the planets, astrology, because they thought that was the realm of the gods. So the emperors would have their thrones with stars and planets as a way of saying, we've got authority over the cosmos. The Greek goddess Hecate, um, she would hold the stars. She named herself the beginning and the end. Does that sound familiar? And when the curtains pull back, John sees it like double rainbow all the way. Like Jesus is holding the stars. It's not the emperors. It's none of the Greek gods. Jesus is holding the cosmos in his hands. Everything's going to be okay. He's got the whole world in his hands. So if you feel like what you're going through right now, is is this going to work out? Like, how am I going to get through this challenging time? Like, pull back the curtain. He's got authority over the cosmos. Like, he's sovereign. He's got the whole world in his hands. It gets better coming out of his mouth with a sharp double-edged sword. Remember this from Hebrews chapter 4. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. In other words, like a surgeon's knife, Jesus' words cut away the cancer of sin, darkness and oppression to preserve life and to bring life. Just one word of Jesus is enough, right? Just one word is enough. And then his face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. This was the great cry of the Old Testament. It's like, let your face shine upon us. This was Aaron's blessing. Like the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine. Don't leave me hanging. Upon you and be gracious to you. Okay, we're not allowed to sing. I feel robbed. Anyway, um, that was the great longing. And, and as the curtains pull back, you know, suddenly John realizes the face of Jesus is shining upon him. 
Like, there, there might be days where you're super insecure and you're like, is, is God upset with me? Like, is he disappointed? Is he like the kind of father figure that says, I'm not angry, I'm disappointed. Is he like that, pulls back the curtain, he's like, his face is radiating towards me. The sun shining means the dawn of a new day. Elsewhere in Revelation, Jesus is described as the bright morning star. The morning star is the star that only appears when the night has reached its point of greatest darkness. It's like super dark and then ding, the morning star. And although it's going to be dark for a little while longer, that star guarantees the arrival of dawn. Jesus is the bright morning star. The kingdom is at hand. And the response of the Apostle John is he falls down as though dead. And then Jesus, the one who's holding the seven planets, the seven stars, ruffles John's head. He says, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last, the living one. I was dead. Now look, I'm alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Now, listen to that language. I'm the first and the last. Earlier in the passage, Jesus said, I'm the Alpha and Omega, the first, the last, the beginning, and the end. Let me just nerd out for one moment. The Greek word for beginning is arche, meaning archetype. Jesus is the archetype of what it means to be human. The Greek word for end is telos, which means destiny. The telos of an acorn is an oak tree. Jesus is the destiny, the telos of everything. He's the archetype and destiny of creation. He's the archetype and destiny of humanity. He is your archetype and he is your destiny. He is your history and he is your future. He is your past and he is your present. He is everything you are longing for. First, last, beginning and the end. And therefore, Do not be afraid. I love these words of Daryl Johnson. On the cross, Jesus let all the powers that threatened to undo us have their unrestrained way with him. He let death take him captive and then he burst out of the prison and carried away the prison keys. This is the Apostle John saying to the seven churches in the province of Asia. He's like, what's the worst that the emperor, Domitian, can do? What's the worst that the empire can do? What's the worst that COVID-19 could possibly do? And the answer is, put you in the prison of death. It's the worst thing it can do, put you in the prison of death. But then John pulls back the curtain, has this revelation of Jesus like with the keys, like, I'm alive and I have the keys. Therefore, you don't need to be afraid. Like if we could just see Jesus for who he is, I'll close with this. A.W. Tozer, he famously said this, what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. A lot of us, when we, when we think of Jesus, and this is because of upbringing and, and maybe how we've been taught stories of Jesus and the images that have shaped us, we think of a Western European Jesus um, made in our image, not in the image of the historical Jesus, who was a person of color, a first century Middle Eastern Jew. So we, we think of someone in our image who's particularly good with animals, particularly lambs, But that isn't the historical Jesus, and nor is it the Jesus of Revelation. That Jesus might help you if your pets are in distress, but can he help you in a global pandemic? Like, can he help you in a moment of political uncertainty, financial turmoil, cultural chaos? Can he help you overcome addiction? Can he help you in the the midst of a deep, dark depression? Can he help you when anxiety is suffocating you to death? And the answer is he can't. The Jesus made in our image, he can't, he isn't powerful enough. 
We need a Jesus, one who is dressed in priestly garments, building a bridge between heaven and earth, whose work is complete, and he invites us to enter into his eternal rest. We need an ageless one, one who's been there, done it, got the t-shirt, walked through the darkest valley of the shadow of death into the green pastures of the new creation. We need a Messiah, one whose eyes are burning with fire to illuminate and purify, to cleanse and to heal, one whose feet are like bronze, creating a firm foundation on which to build, one whose voice sounds like rushing waters, bringing peace and drowning out the noise of darkness that surrounds us, one who holds the seven stars and has sovereignty over the cosmos, one with a sword coming out of his mouth to cut away the cancer of demonic oppression in order to bring eternal life, one whose face is shining like the sun in all of its brilliance, bringing blessing and warmth and life and enabling the dawn of the new creation to break in upon us. So the encouragement from John, and it appears 19 times again and again and again in the book of Revelation, is like, look. Like, pull back the curtain and look at what's actually happening. And when you pull back the curtain, you won't be afraid. It will stir up faith that the Lamb has overcome. The lion is on the move. The kingdom of God is breaking out. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Well, can I tell you this? The presence of the risen and glorified Jesus is the great unseen reality of this moment. The great unseen reality of this moment.